Welcome to Apologetics from the Attic, the show that seeks to teach and defend the Christian faith in a post-Christian culture. And now, broadcasting from an attic in an undisclosed location somewhere outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, here is your host, Dave Lewis. Hello and welcome to another edition of Apologetics from the Attic, the first edition of 2020 on January 6th, 2020. Happy New Year to everyone. And I'm really looking forward to this new year and pumping out some valuable content for those of you who have stumbled upon Apologetics from the Attic uh, ministry that I started a couple months ago uh, to have an online presence um, to defend the historic Christian faith in a post-Christian culture. And we are going to open the new year with our continued study of this book, Herman Hoeksema, Reform Dogmatics. And uh, the previous episode we did um, of Apologetics from the Attic, we uh, went over the distinction between dogmatic theology and systematic theology. And um, you might benefit from listening to that one first. But if you found your way here, we're going to cover chapter five. Now, I want to jump right into this. So this is his five principles of dogmatics, the principles of dogmatics. And this is just an amazing chapter. I mean, when I first read this chapter, I was just like, this is absolutely incredible. The way that this is set up, the way that this is um, done by Mr. Hoeksema. And I have my whiteboard. Um, if you're watching, um, I have a whiteboard there. If you're listening, I'll try to describe what I'm putting on there. But this is one of these uh, episodes where watching will be beneficial because you'll be able to see what I'm doing um, as I'm writing some of these things on the, on the whiteboard. So chapter five, it's called The Principles of Dogmatics. It belongs properly to the introduction to dogmatics to inquire into the reality, the possibility, and the sources of the knowledge of God and to establish and to set forth the epistemological laws or principles that must underlie all scientific dogmatic investigation. This inquiry, however, must may not proceed along rationalistic lines, although this is often done. So when we're talking about dogmatics, when we're talking about the knowledge of God and the knowledge that comes from Scripture, uh, we have to talk about epistemology. Now remember, what's epistemology? Epistemology is the idea of how do we know what we know? Where does knowledge come from? How do we possess that knowledge? How do we come to know things? And he makes a distinction here between um, rationalistic lines and another line that he's going to talk about. So rationalistic lines. So he, And then in the next paragraph, he talks about what, what it means to um, establish knowledge of God along rationalistic lines. So here's what he says about that. The introduction to dogmatics seems to be easily exposed to the danger of becoming a rationalistic critique whose task is to establish a priori, that means before inherent knowledge, something that you've, you've deduced before a priori, the possibility and right of dogmatic science. The introduction or proglenomena, 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 I haven't said that word for a while, <laughs> just means uh, introduction, fancy word for introduction. If you want to be fancy, you say pro proglenomena. If you want to just be normal, you say introduction. The introduction then attempts to establish the rationality of the knowledge of God. Now remember, this is the rationalistic way. The rationality of the knowledge of God and make plain before the bar of reason, quite apart from Scripture, that knowledge of God is possible, that there is indeed an objective principle of knowledge, principium cognoscendi, objectivum, revelation, 
as well as a subjective principle, principium cognoscendi subjectivum, the Christian faith. The conclusion is that faith is quite rational and that therefore dogmatics has a right to claim a place among the sciences. So this is what William Lane Craig does. He's the best um, example of this in modern time. So William Lane Craig will not, he'll set aside the doctrine of scripture. He'll set aside a priori that the Bible's the word of God, that there's Christian revelation that needs to be dealt with. And he'll just try to argue for bare theism. And he'll just try to argue for the fact that it's logical to believe in a God. The preponderance of evidence leads to the more conclusion that there possibly is a God than there is not a God. Theism is more rational than atheism and then proceeds upon that basis. So in other words, the bar of reason is brought forward as an objective principle that can be used to deduce and to um, understand God, that there is a God, that there is knowledge of God that can be had, and reason alone can get us to that point, and then scripture is brought in later. Now, this whole point of this chapter is to argue why that's not possible, and um, just to give you a preview, it's not possible because of sin. It was possible before the fall, but it's not possible after the fall. Let's continue. But this cannot possibly, so th this idea that you can take the bar of reason, subject revelation, subject, subject knowledge of God. So God's here, but reason is what we're using to get at God. Here's what he says. But this cannot possibly be the attitude of the Christian dogmatician, even in the introduction. If one should try thus to approach dogmatics, the very fact that he makes this attempt at a philosophical approach spells his doom as a dogmatician. For what one begins rationalistically, one cannot possibly conclude according to the method of faith, nor can a philosophical approach ever lead one to a knowledge of God and of revelation. So he makes this distinction between if you start rationalistically, then you'll never be able to proceed to revelation because revelation is of a totally different category, a totally different nature than rationalism. So using re so there is a place for reason, but our reason is fallen. And then even based on the nature of God himself, reason has never been able to uh, approach God or knowledge of God. Even pre-fall, Adam did not use his bare reason to, to hear the word of God. The word of God was revelatory, and we'll see that. The introduction, therefore, does not intend to be a definition, a def defense and justification of dogmatics before the bar of reason. On the contrary, quite in harmony with dogmatics itself, its character and approach are and must be strictly theological. In the introduction, the dogmatician is not and cannot be without presuppositions. Rather, he proceeds from the principle that Scripture is the revelation of God. In fact, that God is, that he has revealed himself, and that therefore he is knowable. So in other words, the only reason God is knowable, and, and if you go back to the previous episode, we talked about this in his uh, when he talked about what dogmatics is, the only reason God is knowable is because he reveals himself. God would be unknowable apart from a act of his revelation, of his word going forth from his being. God is not just pure being, and we are arguing up toward him with reason and trying to comprehend him through reason. That's the whole point. It is certainly the task of the introduction to make evident the possibility of the knowledge of God and therefore of dogmatics. However, it does not this it does it does not do this before the bar of reason, but before the mind of faith. 
Even in the introduction, the revelation of Scripture is our objective principle of knowledge. The approach, therefore, of him who institutes this inquiry into the epistemological principles of dogmatics is and remains the approach of faith. So faith, we, we approach this always by faith, by uh, our receiver, bowing to, um, learning from a divine revelation from outside of ourselves. We can't help but do that. That is how we are created because we are created in the image of God. We are created beings. It is quite impossible that the believing dogmatician could set aside his faith and work from another principle in making this inquiry. He is engrafted into Christ, through whom he has received a new life and by whom his mind is illuminated by a new light. He lives in the wisdom of Christ, and in the sphere of that wisdom he performs all his dogmatic labors. He clearly discerns that outside of that sphere, all his labors in the interest of the knowledge of God must cease, because outside of the mind of Christ is the natural, and the natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 So we can't argue... So this is what um, you know William Lane Craig and that type of apologetics tries to do. It tries to find common ground with the unbeliever, who is does not have the mind of Christ, does not understand the things of the Spirit, and takes it out of the realm of revelation and puts it in the realm of reason and says, well, we both have reason, so we can argue from reason. And now, is, is, there, is there a place for that? Yes, but many times you forget the fallen nature of man. And that's what really what this section is about, is about how the fall affects epistemology and how the fall, and that's really a common thing you'll see, um, reform theology is the most robust dogmatic out there about the fall and the radical impact of depravity and the radical impact of the inheriting of a sin nature and the curse that God's placed on this creation and upon knowledge itself um, and, the, and the, the source of knowledge. So we'll see that. The fact is, too, that dogmatics does not wait for an introduction, but continues its labors in the simple faith of the reality of those principles that the introduction is supposed to demonstrate. Even as no science waits until the philosopher has finished his inquiry into the possibility of knowledge and into its basic epistemological principles, but precedes such inquiry, so the church, in developing the system of dogmatics, does not wait until the underlying principles of the knowledge of God have been set forth, but constantly labors at the systematic exposition of the revealed truth. So, you know, you'll go online and you'll see, you know, and the philosophy is great and I love to study it, but if you get stuck in this rut of, philosophy and epistemology and all these different things about what you can get into and is knowledge possible and, and all these different branches of it. Um, and just from pure philosophy, you can get stuck in this rut of, I can't even study the Bible. I can't even approach God. I can't even approach systematic theology, biblical theology until I have this philosophical con construct totally figured out in my mind. I mean, come on, you got to just start reading and studying the Bible. And trust in the Spirit of God, and the God's revelation comes through to those who have the mind of Christ. Dogmatics, therefore, precedes introduction from a principal point of view, and historically it was developed long before any introduction to dogmatics was ever written. Bearing this in mind, however, the introduction to dogmatics certainly fills a need of the human mind and heart and of the believing mind and heart. Always that human mind must inquire not only into the reality, but also into the possibility of the knowledge of God. It's how and why. Thus, in the introduction, the question is asked and an answer is given to it. How is knowledge of God possible? So now we're going to go over these five principles. And here's what I'm going to write on the whiteboard. And I'm going to start writing on the whiteboard. So this is principle one. I'm going to move this microphone a little bit. This is principle, uh, principle one. Principle one. 
Oh, and now I'm not, and now my whiteboard's not going to, oh, there we go. Principle, um, principle one. This is principle one of dogmatic. So let's, let's, um, let's read this. That God is the essential, essential principle, principium ascendi. And, and now these Latin terms were just like, um, if you went to seminary a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, you learned Latin and you learned all these terms. Um, so that's why I'm reading them. I mean, I can't even pronounce Latin very well, but um, God is the essential principle of all theology has been rightly emphasized by all dogmaticians throughout the history of dogma. What is meant by the statement that God is the principle of his own knowledge? How is this to be explained? The answer, in answer to these questions, we offer the following explanation. So here's principle one. And principle one is God is a knowing God. He is not a cold, abstract power, but he is the absolute, perfectly self-conscious, infinite being who is in himself the implication of all perfections. When we say that he is a knowing God, we mean that he is the self-sufficient one even in his knowledge. He has no need of anyone or of being outside of himself, of any being outside of himself. He is a knowing God. He is not in need of an object of knowledge outside of his own infinite fullness. In him, he is the subject and object of all knowledge. He is the perfect subject as well as the infinitely perfect object of his own knowledge. When we say that God is the principle of all knowledge of God, we mean thereby that in the deepest sense, he is also the principle of all knowledge of him that is found in the creature. Okay? Absolutely unbelievable. Um, to just meditate upon this, that God himself in his fullness has all knowledge of himself, all knowledge of everything that's possible to know, all not he is the perfectly infinite, very important, infinite, there's no finitude to his knowledge. The infinite fountain of all knowledge exists within him alone. There is no other source of knowledge that exists other than him. He is the infinite, perfect, pure being who has all knowledge within himself. Now listen to this next part. So so let's 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 so follow the argument. God has 100% perfect knowledge, okay? If God were merely this the object of knowledge anywhere along the line of knowledge, he could not be known. Okay? So if if there was just this general rational principle called knowledge and God was just simply one point along that continuum of knowledge, which is this is the culture we breathe in. This is what I was raised in, in the public school system in America. There's just this general idea of knowledge and there may or may not be a God. You could be an atheist, an agnostic, a theist or whatever. Um, but that's just one point along a whole line of knowledge. Well, if that was the case, God couldn't be known unless he reveals himself. But see, a priori is rejected in atheistic, materialistic scientism that rules our land. It's a priori ruled out that there's no revelation from a God. That's all superstitious. That's all from the past. There's no way to have that knowledge. And they're, they're correct. If, if that's their view of God, then that's correct. But a priori, remember what we're saying here is, what Hoxham is saying here is, revelation is presupposed that God reveals himself. And then he quotes scripture, Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal himself. Okay? 
Next, Scripture teaches that God is the living God. This means that he is the covenant God, which in turn implies that he has fellowship in and with himself. It is in the Trinity that the deepest ground, the fundamental principle of all theology must be found, because the Trinity teaches us that God is a self-conscious God in the highest perfection, and that he is the subject, the predicate, and the copula of this self-knowledge. For he is one in being, the being, other than which there is no being other than existence. There is only one I am, all other is existence. And he is the implication of all perfection. So the doctrine of the Trinity. So let's 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 start drawing this. Okay, so we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And we have this is God. This is the eternal God. Okay? And I tried to draw this out because this is this is just seeing it helps. Okay. So first of all, he's the covenant God, he says, remember. So the God of the covenant. So the covenant God. So th this idea that God is a covenantal God is part of his essential being. It's not simply something that emerges post-creation or post-fall, which I think a lot of dogmatic systems kind of kind of see, see, see it that way, that after the fall, God had to become a covenant God. Or even in the Garden of Eden, God became a covenant God. No, God has always been a covenant God in the relationship eternally that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what is God internally? He is the subject and the predicate. This becomes important. God himself is the subject and predicate of all knowledge. So he is both the subject and predicate of all knowledge that exists. Okay. And he is the object. Okay. So let, let's, con let's continue here. The eternal one subsists in three persons, father, okay, son, and Holy Spirit. This means that the first person is father, generator, subject, and speaker. So what, what are some, some, uh, you know, uh, sorry, what, what are some, um, descriptors here of father? He is the generator. Okay. He is the subject and he is the speaker. So he is the generator, subject. I'm not, this thing is hard to write with. I need to get like a pen or something. He is the generator, subject, and speaker. That's what the father is. The father is those uh, things. And he, with all the infinite perfections of the divine being. In the first person, God is personally father, but he is father in relation to himself as God. The second person is the son, the predicate, the word spoken, the infinite express image of the father, his complete expression. Hence, the son is, with all the infinite perfections of the Godhead, the word of God to God triune. He is the first person of God as the subject. The second person, God, is the predicate. In the third person, the spirit, the predicate, as the word of God concerning God, returns to God. The spirit proceeds from the Father to the Son, and from the Son to the Father. For the spirit searches all things, yea, even the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. Thus there is in God an infinite, perfect self-knowledge. God is a knowing God. So this is very important. So the, the Son is the word of the Father. So the, the word of the Father. He is the predicate of knowledge. God's a subject. The Son is the predicate. And then the Holy Spirit returns this to God and the Father through the Holy Spirit. This is how the Trinity works. This is knowledge. So this, it, from all eternity, before there's even anything created, there is anything called existence, there is anything called time, there's anything called a creature, God is a triune being who in himself 
has this self-knowledge that isn't just stuck in one moment and to be explored. It's it's constantly in a relational, the knowledge of God goes out, the word goes to the son, the, the word goes and it goes in this triune, I'm, I know I'm not explaining this very well, but you'll see when we get to principle two why this is important. So God is a knowing God. That's principle one. Principle one, God is a knowing God. God. Okay. So remember this thing, we'll erase this, but we'll go back to this thing about the Trinity in a moment. Okay. Principle two, let's do principle. No, I'm just going to write two. Principle two from this. So from this idea that there's a triune God who is the knowing God in essence, in his being, he is a knowing God who communicates that knowledge subject to predicate, subject to predicate father to son. That's the word. And then the Holy Spirit communicates between both, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From this it follows that God is a speaking God. He speaks of himself and to himself. He is the subject and the predicate of all his speech. When we say that God speaks, we should be careful to emphasize that his speech is eternally perfect and that it is not limited by our imperfections of time and change as in the speech of man. From eternity to eternity, God expresses the entire fullness of his infinite mind and hears his own word. It is undoubtedly this truth that underlies the conception of the divine wisdom in the Old Testament and the divine word, logos, in the New Testament. The word which God addresses to himself from eternity to eternity is the Son who is always with God and is essentially God. So now we have God as a speaking God. So God is not only a knowing God who possesses all knowledge internally, he's also a God who that knowledge goes forth in speech. So so just take a human analogy. If I have knowledge in my head, but I just stand in the front of the room and utter not a word, you could say Dave Lewis is a knowing being, but he is not a speaking being. He has not spoken. So that knowledge doesn't get communicated by a word. Now, this is saying that God from all eternity, even before he creates, he's a covenant God, he's a knowing God, and he's a speaking God. Okay. Everyone with us so far. Now, it pleased God, according to his eternal good pleasure, to speak concerning himself outside of himself, to let his word proceed outside of himself, ad extra. I'm going to write this one because this is a very important Latin term. Ad extra. God speaks outside of himself. Ad extra. So ad intra is the eternal life of the Trinity which is from all eternity, the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is one of covenant, one of knowledge, and one of speech. And there is an eternal interaction subject predicate between the persons of the Trinity. But now he's saying that this triune eternal being has chosen to communicate outside of himself ad extra. Okay? And that was his good pleasure to do that. It should be emphasized that this is not an act of necessity, but of sovereignty, of sovereign freedom, determined by his sovereign eternal counsel. So God's under no necessity to communicate anything to any creature. He does this freely. This is very important. Many dogmatic systems, pop evangelicalism, makes it that God's attributes, he's under necessity to express them. So God must show love. He must show grace. He must do this and this. No, he must not do anything. He is the only free, infinite being. Everything he does is free. He freely does. Sorry, my ears itching. He freely does whatever he wants to do. 
Perhaps it is dangerous to try to say more about the motive of this speech of God outside of himself. Surely scripture teaches us that this speech is motivated by God's supreme will to glorify himself, yet the question remains, why should God desire to have his speech go forth outside of himself at extra, seeing that his speech within himself at intra is eternally perfect? <laughs> Good point. So if you're reformed listening to this, uh, many times you are fond of saying God does everything he does to glorify himself. You got you to gotta qualify when you say that because you can't make it appear that God is less glorious from all eternity. God is not less glorious. He could have remained in all eternity, just the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and not had any diminishment of glory had he chosen not to create anything, not to reveal anything to creatures. So it, it, he's, he's got a good point there. Why, and it's like we can't answer this question ultimately, if God ad intra from all eternity had perfect covenant relationship, perfect communion, perfect knowledge, perfect speech with himself, why did he need to communicate ad extra? It didn't add anything to him. He doesn't know his necessity to do it. So that should make us adore God even more that he would even share this knowledge of himself with anyone, seeing that he did not need to share it with anyone because he was perfectly self-sufficient in himself. Another frequently asked question arises here. Does God's speech outside of himself add anything at all to his own glory? Can anything be added to that perfect self-glorification which he has through the word and in the spirit? Here we stand before the ultimate mystery of the relation between the world and God. I'll just let that stand. Let it be sufficient to say that all God's works outside of himself are motivated by his works within himself. The word that he speaks within himself and to himself, the eternal word, logos, is both the prototype and the motive for the word that he speaks outside of himself. Beholding the fullness of his good, own goodness in the image of his Son, and expressing and receiving the fullness of his glory through the eternal word, Logos, God desires and determines to let the uncreated word also go forth creatively. This is the idea of the objective principle of knowledge, principium cognoscendi objectivum, or the objective fountain of the knowledge of God. We must remember that also in this word of God, outside himself, he does not speak first to us, but he speaks of himself and to himself. He remains the subject and the predicate of this knowledge. This is true of the speech of God in creation. Scripture teaches that all things are made through the word and that this without the word, Logos, was not anything made that was made, John 1, 3, so that we may say that the universe is the created word or Logos. This word is not like a dead handwriting, but it is the living word of God that continues to speak concerning himself. Okay, so we have, I'll just draw a triangle here. Here's the triune God. Ad intra, I'll just put I-N here, ad intra, the, the tri triune being ad intra, this, this, this dance, this covenantal relationship, pure knowledge, true knowledge, all knowledge, self-sufficient, no need to communicate any of it, yet God does what? He communicates ad extra, and he chooses by a free act of his will, which we can't understand what his motive is ultimately because he doesn't have to do it. He freely chooses to create, to create a universe. And amazingly, John 1, 3, this universe is imbued with, let's read that again, his speech, his ad extra knowledge and speech is now contained in this creative act of God, okay? This word, um, 
scripture. So, okay, let, okay, here, let me go back here. It is because God spoke in the beginning that the world received its original existence. It is because God speaks that the world continues to exist, for he ups, upholds all things by the power, word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. Hence, the universe is a speech of God, variegated and differentiated in many ways, yet concentrating on one theme, the living God himself. In all its rich and unending variation, the word constitutes the one word of God created. Therefore, quote, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork, Psalm 19.1, to himself first of all. God creates the light and he beholds the light. The light proceeding from him returns to him, and thus all the word he speaks and in which he expresses his own perfections always returns in all its fullness to the subject itself. Please get this if you're, if you're watching. So in the same way, is in principle one, in the ad intra trinity, we have knowledge and speech, and those two principles are both the objective and subjective principles, and the predicate and the uh, the the subject and predicate. The, in this, and then it, it, so God g- communicates His knowledge and speech into His Word, the Son, and that goes by, through the Holy Spirit back to the Father. In the same way, God spoke into existence the universe by His Word, and God beholds that knowledge and it returns back to Him. So it's the same principle. God speaks. His universe is imbued with his knowledge and his speech, and that speech returns to God. Okay, so we have this also the word of God returns to God by means of the Holy Spirit in in the ad extra knowledge of God as in the ad intra knowledge of God. Principle three. Principle three. A God who reveals Himself. Now, just keep this. This is a very logical thing. Let's continue to to continue to walk through it step by step. This is principle three, right? Three up there. If nothing more could be said, however, there would be no revelation of God, because revelation implies that God speaks not only to Himself but also to another outside of Himself. In other words, that there is a being who can receive and understand God's speech concerning Himself and to Himself is implied in revelation. Since such a being does not exist of himself, revelation implies that God creates such a being who is capable of becoming the subject of the knowledge of God. So principle three, principle three, let me get my my notes out here. Principle three, okay, now we have a God who, so, so, so here we go. Here's the triangle again. That's the, the infinitely knowing God who speaks Father, Son, and Spirit. He has created a, in this circle represents just the, the entirety of the universe, sun, moon, stars, planets, planet earth, all matter, all time, all everything. And he creates it. And then of course, you know, the, the, make sure this, you understand this, this, this circle of God's knowledge goes forth that extra, but comes back to him. But there would still be no revelation. Why? Because within this circle, there is no being as, as Hoxima says, capable of under of receiving and understanding God's speech concerning himself. So what does God do? This being God created when he formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed his into his nostrils the breath of life, thus making him into a living soul whom God endowed with his own image. In man, the light of the word Logos shone clearly and brightly. Man was endowed first with so-called natural light. Okay, so, so he creates 
Adam. Adam is in the image of God. Adam is now capable. He is a being because he's made in God's image who's capable of receiving this knowledge of God that God has ad extra revealed. Okay? Very, very, very important. So God creates it. And in the word, the, this, this term logos, the word, the word of God not only created the universe, it created man. Okay? In man, the light of the word logos shone clearly and brightly. Man was endowed first with so-called natural light. His five-fold sensation placed him in contact with the speech of God and the things that were made so that he became recipient of that speech. By his power, listen to this, this is very important. By the power of his perception, he was able to interpret the sensation and therefore the speech of God in connection with it. Through his intellect, he was able to understand the work of God as a whole and came to the knowledge of the one God. This power became manifest in Adam's act of giving names to the animals. So this is, this is important. Because, I mean, I, for the longest time, you know, when, when you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Do you just think of a couple beings who are like cavemen? Do you just think of a couple beings who kind of are like oafs and don't really know anything? And they're just like super innocent and walking around, have no education, no knowledge, no understanding of how the world works. They're kind of just meandering around the garden. What? picking some fruit and having sex and and just just enjoying themselves and laying back in a lounge chair that's kind of what i have always thought but for hoaxma that no adam perfectly perceived the knowledge of god and the things that were made romans 1 he was not fallen he could look at a blade of grass And that blade of grass would connect him perfectly with the creator of the universe who made it. And he would return praise and worship and he would be able to understand who God was by meditating upon that blade of grass. And and the example he gives is Adam names all the animals. Have you ever thought about what that means? That every animal God made was brought before Adam and he named them all? He classified and arranged them and gave them names. Was he some oaf? No, he had perfect, unhindered knowledge of God in the creation. This is very important. So here's the creation. Here's Adam unfallen. He has this perfect, so the natural light that God has placed, the word that God has placed. So God, man has natural light. The word is imbued, principle two, in this thing God made called the creation. And Adam, by his five, his sense perception and his intellect, is able to perfectly comprehend who God is, the works of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God in what was made. Revelation at this time, at this stage in redemptive history, revelation was unhindered The communication of God's word was coming from creation to Adam, unhindered. He had unhindered access to the knowledge of God. That add extra knowledge of God that God revealed, Adam could perfectly perceive it through what was made. (laughs) Absolutely unbelievable. Now let me read Hoxima. 
In light of the scriptural account of man's creation and his relation to all things and to God, the philosophy of idealism must be emphatically condemned. The subject does not create the object, nor can there be any doubt as to the proper correspondence and relationship between subject and object. But through the Spirit, the Word, Logos, is in man received the true knowledge of and stood in proper relation to the Word, Logos, in creation. So there's this the word in creation and the word in man is perfectly corresponding, perfectly connecting. There's nothing, there's no hindrance of it. So in rationalism, we attempt to use reason to study creation and work our way to God. And we're going to understand in principle four and five why that's not possible. Okay. But at this point, that was possible. This is the point. It was possible through the intellect of Adam pre-fall to perceive in the created order the glory and knowledge and existence of God purely from the creation itself. That was the revelation of God. There's a built-in revelation because God spoke his word and imbued his creation with his word. Nobody's is making sense to you. I mean, this is, this is unbelievable just to, to meditate on and think about this, this, this what, what he's saying here. Okay, next. Second, this man was endowed with true spiritual light for the image of God. So he first talked about he had this intellectual light where he was like the master scientist. Like Adam was like the master understander of creation and the nature and natural light and natural law and all these things we talk about that we separate from God as supernatural revelator. And he was the master of all those things being created in the image of God. And he had that perfect intellect. But now we're talking about spiritual light. For the image of God consisted in true knowledge, the knowledge of love and of righteousness and of holiness. So Adam also had that knowledge. Okay, he didn't he didn't lack the knowledge of God as righteous and loving. Okay, and God as, as holy. Ephesians four twenty four, Colossians three ten. Man's knowledge was not a mere theoretical theology. He knew with his whole being and from his inmost heart he responded in love to the speech of God concerning himself. Man's knowledge was the knowledge of life. Third, to this creature who was so endowed with the light of his senses and of his perception and with the spiritual light of the image of God properly functioning, God gave the marvelous gift of intelligent speech. Check this out. Check this out. So in the same way, okay, let me read it and then I'll explain it. Therefore, man was capable of expressing what he caught in his own soul of the speech of God and of declaring the glory of the name of God. That light in man who was made after the image of God was the original subjective principle of knowledge, principium cognoscende subjectivum. So, in the same way, in principle two, that God, the, the ad intra knowledge of God, came out ad extra through his word in the beginning, God said, let there be light, Genesis 1.1. And John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and nothing was made without the word. The same way the word went to the creation and the creation returned to God in that knowledge. In the same way, God's word created man and God not only made man capable as in his image, um, accessing that knowledge that God placed in creation and taking it in. Okay. And he could, like I said, he holds up a blade of grass. He can take it every bit of knowledge that that contains about God, the creator, he can perceive it through his five senses, his intellect. He perceives it. And not only does he perceive it, he sees that there's a covenant God in that too, which is powerful. 
in that same, but God not only just makes him capable of taking in knowledge, what does God also make us capable of doing? What man capable of doing? Returning that to God with our own speech. Same way the creation, so does man's speech returns to God. So we not only take in that information, we return it to God. And that is the subjective principle of knowledge because we now are the subject of this knowledge. This knowledge comes to us. We take it in and we return it to God. This is man in his unfallen state. Okay. I know this is, this is, I, I hope you're following this at least at a basic level. Okay. So principle four, it'll all come together once we get to the end of the principles. So principle four, let me erase this. Principle four, we're almost done. Principle four. <coughs> God, a God who reveals himself in a fallen world, is principle four. However, through sin, this is important, listen very carefully. However, through sin, an important change was caused with respect to both the subjective and objective principles of knowledge. As to the speech of, okay, let me, let me rewrite this. So here's God once again just redrawing this diagram over and over again for those who are listening. Um, so, as to the speech of God through the things that were made, it must not be said that it was silent. So remember, God's word, his speech, was his creation is imbued with God's speech. The, the very creation we live in is a very dynamic organism that continually holds the intelligence, the speech, the knowledge of God. I mean, just think of DNA, for example, how DNA is the very blueprint of life that we have discovered that that is the very speech and knowledge of the eternal, infinite being, God, the triune God of scripture. That, that, Creation is imbued with that. Its its very essence is soaked with the knowledge of the glory of God and who He is and His create. He's the Creator. I mean, this is what intelligent design tries to get at: is that you look at the creation itself and you can't deny that there had to be an intelligence behind it. Okay, so so there, that that is imbued. But what's the change introduced by the fall? Okay. Okay. The impression is often left that because of sin, hardly any or no sound of that speech is heard in creation anymore. Okay, so um, this is the error of presuppositionalism sometimes, is it falls into this, oh, well, it, th th there's nothing known about God in, in creation at all anymore. And if, if as a presuppositionalist, you got to be a little more careful about how you talk about this because you open yourself up to unnecessary defenses you're trying to make of a presuppositionalism that you don't even need to go there. Okay. But the light continues to shine even in the darkness, even though the darkness is not comprehended. John 1, 5. And the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, more particularly his eternal power and divinity. So there still is speech getting through. So here's man. And man still is perceiving something from the creation. So remember, the creation was communicating to Adam pre-fall, his intellect, his five senses. He perceived from the things that were made, the glory of God, the power of God, 
and he did that perfectly. But now what does man perceive and what has God, what change has God placed upon the created order and upon us as humans? What has sin wrought on us that changes our epistemology and our ability to take in knowledge and, and return it to God? This is what we're talking about. Okay, listen to this. Now, this is where Hoxima is just like the strong medicine of the Dutch high Calvinism that I think our church in America desperately needs. Listen to this. God still speaks of himself as the one who must be feared and glorified. But there is another speech of God through the things that are made, a speech that was not heard before sin came, but that must be heard by the creature. For the very reason that after sin entered the world, God always speaks of himself by the speech of his most holy wrath. Death was pronounced as the sentence against the sinner, and death was executed. Besides, the ground was cursed, and the whole creation was made subject to vanity, and is in the bondage of corruption, Romans 8, 20 and 21. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, Romans 1, 18. So whereas before the fall, this arrow here coming from creation, God's word in creation being perceived by the intellect and senses of Adam, now what is there? is the death, the judgment, the curse upon creation, God's most holy wrath, his sentence of death and curse upon the sinner. That is what is perceived. And as Hoxham is saying, that is perceived perfectly by the creature. The creature, if there's one thing that we can perceive, and just think about it for a moment, if there's one thing that all seven plus billion people on planet Earth clearly perceive right now, I don't care what culture you live in, what language you speak, what nation you're in, is death. Is that things die. There is pain. There is suffering. The creation is, is a labor to get food and sustenance out of it. To, it it's, the, the animal kingdom is turned against us. We are its enemies. There is a curse upon the planet Earth. This is what is now perceived. In other words, God still speaks. Speak, so God, there is still a natural theology. There is still a nature holding up the blade of grass. There is still speech coming to us that we perceive. But what is that speech? He speaks concerning himself through a fallen world. He speaks of justice and holiness, of wrath and death. Nor is there any way out. As far as God's speech through the things that are made is concerned, the door is closed. There is neither love nor mercy. God is the terror of the creature who hears his speech. So the objective principle of knowledge has changed now to God objectively. He imbued his creation with this word and then he cursed his creation. And now the creation, instead of speaking of life, Okay, and order and harmony, which all reflects back on the God of pure being and knowledge. And he has all that self-sufficiently ad intra. Now what the creation does is it reveals to us God is holy. We are under judgment and sin has infected the planet because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And God has inflicted a curse. And he is now speaking of that curse and of the judgment to come through the means of his creation. 
That's the change in the objective principle of knowledge. Now, what's the change in the subject? Also, the subject of the knowledge of God, remember, man, has changed through sin. For all the light that was in man became darkness. This does not mean that man became irrational. He retained a few remains of natural light. By the light of these remains, he perceives and to an extent understands the things that are made and is able to live his earthly existence. So there is a sense in which the fall does not eradicate our ability. This is why you have natural, you have people who are unbelievers and hate God who can learn science and perceive the laws of nature and and do amazing things. God did not make us irrational brute beasts. We still retain but, but it's, it's amazing to think that Adam, in his unfallen condition, was much more intelligent and brilliant and was much more of a scientist than our most brilliant Einstein and all these type of people combined. Just Adam, without any of this accumulated scientific knowledge that we have as human beings, he was more brilliant than all of them. And his intellect was functioning at a 50 million times higher level than any of theirs, okay? Because the fall has eradicated that almost completely, not totally. But I mean, the comparison between Adam pre-fall and us post-fall, I think we forget about sometimes. This is where the doctrine of sin is so important in your dogmatic system. This is what Huxham is ultimately getting at. What is your view of the impact of the fall, the noetic effects of sin, it's called in Reformed theology? How did sin affect the intellect? and our ability to perceive God in the things that are made. Okay, and he's saying it, 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 it shredded it quite a bit. But this light, such as, such as it is in man's present state, state of sin, is nothing but a very faint glow in comparison with Adam's original light of clear intuition, whereby he was able to perceive and understand the word of God in creation, as became evident in his naming of the animals. This light is sufficient to leave man without excuse, because he plainly perceives that God is the one who must be thanked and glorified, but it certainly cannot serve as an adequate principle for any kind of natural theology. A theology that ignores the revelation that has now come through Christ Jesus can never be any more than mere philosophy of man always creating his own God and worshiping an idol. So what, what all natural theology does and rationalistic, it, it attempts to say, well, we can take this situation where God's creation is now cursed and it bears the mark of God's holiness and his wrath against sin in the coming judgment that we all ex- are going to experience because we are children, sons and daughters of Adam and he is our federal head and we are in covenant relationship with Adam, which puts us in covenant relationship with God. And then that that covenant has been broken and it's brought the consequences upon planet Earth and upon the creation order, the entire universe itself. Oh, we can take that and turn it into a objective, reasonable, um, no, with no presupposition whatsoever, knowledge of God. That's impossible by the nature of the case, because we as the subjects have been so corrupted by sin and God's curse upon us and upon this, he's put us into darkness and we only have a faint glow. There's no way we could construct the natural theology of ourselves because we are corrupted. Now, Adam could before the fall, but after the fall, we cannot. And all human philosophy proceeds under the idea that no, we can rise above the sin nature. We can rise above the, the limitations placed on us by the fall and we can have a pure, using our reason, argue our way back to God. Not possible. The only thing that can happen apart from revelation is we, as he says, we have philosophies of men and we create our own God and worship an idol. Okay? Everybody with me so far? Absolutely great. Okay, final principle. Final principle is... 
God who reveals himself in Christ. Okay, so principle five. So we're almost done. We're almost done here. Um, if, if this, if you're still listening up to this point, praise God, because I, you know, and I encourage you to purchase this book as, as well and, and just study it yourself. Still another change was introduced through sin, affecting both the objective and subjective principles of knowledge. This is the revelation of God in Christ Jesus, in Christ, the incarnate son of God, himself, the revelation of the father, not only in his person, but also in all his work as he died on the cross, was raised on the third day and was exalted on the right hand of God. In him, the Most High reveals himself in the midst of the darkness of sin and death as the God of salvation, who not only calls the things that are not as if they were, but who also quickens the dead, Romans 4, 17, and as the God who calls the light out of darkness, righteousness out of sin, life out of death. In the midst of the condemning and cursing speech of God concerning himself, a new speech was heard, the speech of the gospel of God concerning his son. It was heard from the beginning, for even in paradise the holy gospel of God was proclaimed, Genesis 3.15, and its speech was heard throughout the ages of history by patriarchs and prophets in direct revelation, as well as in visions and dreams. It was heard through all the speech of the Old Testament law, for it spoke through all the shadows of the old dispensation. It was finally realized, spoken to men directly in the Son incarnate, crucified, raised, and exalted. It was heard in the new dispensation by the apostles and evangelists. The contents of this new speech of God, the church now possesses in the inspired record of the Holy Scriptures. What an amazing paragraph. Now, so we have the triune God, this is principle five. Okay. We have the situation of sin, the curse, death, sinful humanity. And what do we have now introduced in principle five? Now we have the gospel, the revelation of the God who is the God. What did it say? The, the son of God, the revelation of the father. And we have the salvation that is in Christ Jesus that was who calls light out of darkness, righteousness out of sin, life out of death. So in the midst of this death and this sin and this judgment, the God sends his word, who is the eternal son, who is ad intra in the Trinity, has this perfect knowledge, perfect relationship with the father. Read the gospel of John. And he comes down and becomes incarnate. And this revelation is different than is a new revelation, a voice of God that comes, a new speech that comes in the midst of this other speech, which is sin and death and judgment and God's wrath. Okay, And it starts in Genesis 3.15, and he's got a biblical theology there of in the old dispensation, there is types and shadows of it. And in the new dispensation, in the new covenant, we have the full revelation of the, the very embodiment of these promises, the very embodiment of this speech of God in the old covenant. It takes on bodily form in the incarnate Son of God, where the Son of God actually takes upon himself a human nature. Amazing. To set forth the meaning of this speech in a systematic form is the task of dogmatics. Hence, it stands to reason that the, for the dogmatician, the scriptures are the objective principle of knowledge. Okay, so remember, remember, when Adam was unfallen, okay, the, what was the objective principle of knowledge? How, how did he perceive? What was the object that came to him and he subjectively perceived it? It was the creation itself in an unfallen state, communicating perfectly unhindered the glory, the majesty, the being of God 
to Adam in all its fullness. And then Adam returned that to God in praise and worship and glorifying God. Sin now has rendered that object, that knowledge that came, that God put into the creation, it has rendered that impossible to perceive. We have a dim light. We All this does now is, it, and remember, there's still speech. This is what's powerful about Hulksum's dogmatic. There's still speech. It's just the speech of God's most holy wrath and judgment that everyone perceives, that we are all going to die. There is death and a curse placed upon creation. Every All seven billion people on planet Earth instinctively know this, that we are under the curse and there's nothing else you could get out of living your life of anxiety and fear and struggle in relationships and death and disease and cancer and all these things we fight against constantly they're they're screaming in our face there is a god and he is angry and he is holy and we have sinned okay but in the midst of that what is the new so 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 instead of looking to the creation this little arrow let's that's the let's say that little arrow there represents what the creation communicates to us natural theology or whatever you want to call it what is the subjective principle of knowledge now that that Hoxham is talking about post incarnation resurrection death resurrection ascension of Christ the scriptures the the holy scriptures the bible the church possesses now the bible the bible is what communicates in the midst of sin curse. This is the Bible is the embodiment of the Son of God, the Word stepping into flesh, and He He leaves behind. He communicates to us. He does it in types and shadows, but in fullness in the new covenant. Now we have the Scriptures, and the Scriptures are that objective knowledge. So the Scriptures take the place of what was in the garden pre-fall, the objective source of knowledge, which was God's word imbued in the creation. Now it's God's word imbued in written form, carried by the church and instituted by Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. I hope this is all coming together for you. So these things build on one another. Now we have the Holy Spirit, Christ, Son of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that this knowledge cycle that that takes place at intra, this knowledge cycle that took place as God created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden and gave them the image of God and they could perfectly perceive with their intellect and their in their um their their perception who God was. But now the fall has made sin, and so that natural theology is no longer possible because of our sin nature and because of the effect it has on our intellect and our senses. And then then God himself has changed what the natural theology tells us to one of, I am holy and you are sinful. But then what God does is he takes that and he shifts it to the Bible. This is why having the highest view of Scripture is so crucial the highest possible view that this book, I mean, it wasn't Calvin who said we should have such a reverence for this book, the scriptures, that when we open it and read it, we should, is it's as if we are in the very presence of the almighty God and he is speaking to us. And I'm convicted every day that I don't take his word that seriously. So the objective principle of knowledge now is changed to the Bible. The Holy written scriptures are that which communicate who God is and what he has done, and his glory, and his majesty, and who he is. That The knowledge of God is now in the scriptures. Now, it's still in creation, but it's corrupted, and it's been shifted by God and his curse to show us that we are sinners and that we deserve judgment. Okay. Now, there's still faint light, he says, but this has been shifted to the Bible. That's the objective. Now, but that doesn't answer the question. We're still here in the state of sin. 
So Christ has come, right? And he has was born, lived, died, resurrected, ascended back to the Father. But wait a minute. And he's left behind this powerful mode of revelation called the scriptures, the written scriptures. But we are still sinners. So what about the subjective principle of knowledge? What about us as the subject perceiving this object of God's knowledge found in the scriptures? Okay. Even so, not all is said regarding this new work and speech of God concerning himself. For the natural man can never hear this speech. See that? So even if there is a new speech, we're in no different. We're, we're in the same situation as we would be if Christ never came. The only speech we're going to understand, and, and we can't understand God, who he is from the natural revelation. It's the same thing. Nothing's changed internally about us. We could have this, this, this written scriptures in front of us. But as, as scripture clearly says, he has no eyes to see, no ears to hear, and he cannot understand or discern the things of the spirit. First Corinthians 2, 14. We might say that the theme of first Corinthians two is that this new speech of God can only be received by the spiritual man, that therefore the real subjective principle of knowledge is the spirit of God in Christ. Now, if you follow along with me so far, your mind is blown right now. Okay. If you haven't go back and listen to this five more times, I had to probably read this chapter literally 15 times till, till it started going, this is amazing the way he's doing this. Um, so now what he does in this, this is like, he does this exegesis. I know I'm not, this, this episode's going long. I don't want this episode to go, to go super long here. So, um, I just got a couple more paragraphs to read, but he, now he exegetes first Corinthians chapter two, basically. I mean, he basically goes verse by verse, and you wouldn't know it unless you knew the content of 1 Corinthians 2, but let's, let, me, let me try to wrap this up, okay? The apostle begins by saying that it was impossible for him to come to the Corinthians with excellency of speech or of human wisdom, with any show of human learning or philosophy, as he proclaimed to them the testimony of God. For this testimony, this new speech of God concerning Christ and him crucified, and this subject did not allow the form of human speech or wisdom. Therefore, the apostles' speech and preaching were not in persuasive words of human reasoning or philosophy, but simply a demonstration of the Spirit and power. This does not mean, however, that he and the other apostles did not speak wisdom. They did. But it was not the wisdom of this world or the rulers of this world, verse 6 and 8. It was a wisdom that belongs in the sphere of the mystery and therefore can only be spoken in that sphere, verse 7. The speaker must move in that sphere of mystery in order to be able to reproduce this new speech of God, because this speech concerning the glory that God has determined before the ages to bestow upon his people. Therefore, it is a hidden speech insofar as this present cosmos is concerned. So, so remember, what's the new, the, now the Holy Spirit. Okay, so before, okay, and this is just why, this is why regeneration precedes everything. Okay, God's powerful work of his Holy Spirit in the heart, in the mind, of, in the intellect of humans, his grace, whether you're Arminian or Calvinist or whatever you stand, you still don't, Pelagianism denies that this is necessary. Okay, none of us should be Pelagians. Don't care if you're a Calvinist, Arminian, Provisionist, non-reform, whatever you call yourself. The Holy Spirit now is the subject is the one who comes in and restores our ability to perceive what God has instituted in his scriptures. But in God's wisdom, did he go did he use reason or rationality and did he use that mechanism to 
communicate this new revelation, this revelation of God in Christ, the covenant God of the new covenant? No, he did it through the scriptures, which is hidden in this cosmos because it's only destined for those who he, by his spirit, brings to, to life. And election does play a role in this whole dogmatic system. So predestination is not simply an afterthought halfway into the dogmatics. Oh, by the way, predestination. No, you'll see it. it's actually soaked in this part right here about the, the uh, God choosing to reveal this to only those who are destined to receive it. That wisdom is not from this world, of this world, is evident from the fact that the chief of this world crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 8. Besides, this is in harmony with what is written in Isaiah 64, 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has I seen or God besides thee what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. The wisdom that this apostles speak, therefore, is not to be discovered by philosophy, empirical, or speculative. 1 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9. However, God revealed this hidden wisdom to the apostles through the Spirit. This Spirit is the principle of all knowledge of God within the adorable Trinity. The Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Even as only the Spirit of man knows what is in man, so the Spirit of God knows what is in God. This Spirit, not the Spirit of the world, cosmos, the apostles have received. That is, he dwells in them, he illuminates them, and he so operates upon them that they also become subjects of the knowledge of the new speech of God. The apostle writes that they have received the Spirit in order that they might know the things bestowed upon the church by grace. I'll just read the next few paragraphs because we're almost out of, time. We're out of time here. In the apostles, therefore, in them as apostles, the Spirit is the true subjective principle of the knowledge of God. From this it follows, the apostles continue, that they cannot speak as the philosophers do, as they try to find a solution to the problems of the world, either through what they see and hear or through the imaginations and considerations of their own heart. The philosophers speak in enticing words, verse 4. The apostles must speak in words taught by the Spirit, verse 13. By the same token, because this Spirit of God in Christ is the subjective principle of this divine wisdom, the natural man cannot receive it, verse 14. To him the spiritual things are foolishness. Only the spiritual man can distinguish, discern, and judge the spiritual things. For he has the Spirit of God, through whom he is brought into contact with the hidden mystery of God, the new speech. While the spiritual man discerns all these things and speaks of, or witnesses of them, he himself is a mystery to the natural man and is discerned by no one. The conclusion is that only he who has the mind of Christ can know the mind of the Lord, and that only he who has the Spirit of Christ can know his mind, verses 10 to 16. This is dead stuff, man. It follows, therefore, that all the subjective principle of knowledge is changed. Christ has received the Spirit and has become the quickening Spirit. Through that Spirit, he now dwells in the church and constantly imparts himself to all his benefits of light and life, of wisdom and knowledge to all his own. It is in that Spirit that he testifies through the word of the gospel, of the new speech of God, and of our salvation concerning himself. Centrally, then, the Spirit of Christ himself is the subjective principle of knowledge, insofar as the church becomes co-workers with Christ through faith in the Spirit, that faith is the principle by which the church hears and reproduces the speech of God. Mm. So Christ has come. He's through his apostles, his spirit dwells, deposits that revelation in the written scriptures. We now inhabit the church who is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And we are not finding our knowledge of God through the things of this world or the things that are made. We are finding it through the supernatural revelation of the inspired writings of the apostles and the prophets. And they are, they are giving us that 
perfect knowledge of God that comes to us and we perceive it how? Because the Holy Spirit's taken up residence in us and this speech, the speech of God, is not the speech that can be understood by the world, but it's understood by the people of God. So what's his whole point to wrap this up? Dogmatics takes seriously the fact that God is a speaking and knowing God and his knowledge and his speech was known in creation and Adam was able to receive that revelation perfectly because there was no sin introduced. But when sin was introduced into the equation, now that objective knowledge is now that comes through creation has now changed to the knowledge of God as holy judge and death and wrath. But now the new revelation contained in scripture, which is set alongside that natural revelation is in the scriptures. And Jesus Christ is the ultimate object of that. And the subject is us, but as the Holy Spirit comes and it takes up residence in us. And now we can understand what's revealed in scripture because of the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, in the scriptures, through the power of Jesus Christ. This is now, and now as the Bible Gets, then we return that to God. And now he has his living organism, the church, which is in, in fellowship with the Holy Spirit and connected to Christ, going back to the Father. And now this is the new cycle of knowledge. God's word goes forth, his Holy Spirit to the, to the scriptures, and the, the Holy Spirit takes the knowledge of God objectively and applies it to us subjectively through Christ and through the ministry of this Holy Spirit and through the ministry of Christ. And we then proclaim that to the world and we proclaim it back to God. There it is. There it is. Now, this is a foundational principle that we're going to return to over and over again um, on Apologetics from the Attic. I want to thank you for joining me. Um, If you have watched this far, please um, visit our website. I have a new website that I just built, apologeticsfromtheattic.com. I've got a lot of content on there. Uh, Please share that. Please like and share our Facebook page and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And I want to thank you so much for uh, tuning in to this 2020 inaugural episode of Apologetics from the Attic in the new year of 2020. May it be a blessed year for you to grow in your understanding of the Christian faith and living it out to the glory of God. Amen.